The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the hosts and creators of this program. This is the Pet Buzz. This is the Pet Buzz. Freshly collected with news, celebrity pet gossip, and the latest pet trends. Hosted by pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and Dr. Michael Fleck. And here's the Dynamic Pet Duo. So what's the buzz? The Pet Buzz, the ultimate in pet talk radio, where each week we discuss enhancing the bond between pets and their people. You know, we welcome listeners who tune in each week from around the world. Doc, I got a really interesting but eerie story about you, and it has to do with one of your patients. Really? Well, it seems a neighbor's dog, a pit bull, died recently, and they buried the dog in the backyard and outfitted the spot with a cross. That particular dog never went out much, while Beretta, the dog living next door to the deceased, never played or even met the pit bull. Beretta's your client. She's owned by Chuck Weston. Okay. Okay, so Beretta's daily activity is catching tennis balls when her owner, Chuck, hits them for her each day in front of her home. Well, over the weekend, the owner of the deceased dog informed Beretta's parents that for the last week, Beretta visits the grave every day of the deceased dog and leaves a tennis ball. Wow. Perhaps she leaves the tennis ball to encourage that pit bull to have some fun and sport over Rainbow Bridge. Strange story, Dr. Fleck? Strange, yes, but very interesting. Yeah, and the dogs never played together. Yeah. The dogs very rarely went outside, very rarely got walked. It was three years old, and they all had COVID. They didn't know what happened to the dog. They thought maybe the dog got COVID, but I thought that was a really eerie story. Well, anyway, this week we're talking about the changing regulations regarding bringing animals into the U.S., utilizing coupons, monkeypox, Martha Stewart's peacocks, and Shark Week returns to Discovery Channel with a full week of TV specials that started last Sunday, June 24th. Joining us to talk sharks is Dr. Gavin Naylor, the program director of the Florida Program for Shark Research and the University of Florida. You know, Dr. Naylor, 34 years of Shark Week, why do you think we love sharks so much? That's a great question. I think people enjoy uh, potentially being terrified by large animals that are more powerful than them, especially when they're uh, in an environment that we're not very well adapted to. I think young children always worry about monsters under the bed. And I think when they grow up, they worry about monsters under the sea surface. <laughs> I, I totally agree with you. So what's your favorite species of shark and why? So it's a little known species that you never see on Shark Week. It's probably only known from about uh, a half a dozen specimens. It's called a taillight shark and it's about nine inches long. It lives in total darkness at about 5,000 meters down. And it has uh, a gland in it that releases luminous fluid. And so we think, we, we, nobody's ever seen one alive, but we've pulled them up in nets. And if you squeeze them, this luminous fluid comes out of this little gland near the cloaca. We think they're like the opposite of an octopus. An octopus will release black ink and uh, it will then, uh, a predator that's that's pursuing the octopus will be distracted by the black ink cloud and the octopus can escape and go and hide. Well, in total darkness, we think that this little taillight shark produces a plume of luminous 
cloud of fluid and any predator that's chasing it will be distracted by this cloud of luminous fluid and the little shark can then swim away into the darkness and avoid being eaten. That's cool. It is cool. Yeah. I have to look up a taillight shark when I get home today. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I wonder too if maybe that helps them for finding food because will that make it some visual opportunity for them to see something that they're after? So uh, when you're down at 5,000 meters, there's almost no light gets through. So they don't really use visual cues, but they will use other senses to be able to find their own food. So that's why we think that this is just uh, predator avoidance because that little plume of light will be quite blinding when you're in total darkness. Yeah. Yeah. Predatory defense mechanism. That's why he's a researcher and I'm a practitioner. Obviously. Yeah, okay. So let's yeah. move on. So if you've just joined us, we're speaking with Dr. Gavin Naylor, the program director of the Florida Program for Shark Research at the University of Florida. You know, Dr. Naylor, research has revealed that sharks are essential to maintaining healthy oceans ecosystems. Without these top predators, how does this, I guess, delicate balance of marine life become unstable? That's a great question. So we don't actually know what would happen if sharks are fished out. And that's because the relationships between different trophic levels uh, in the hierarchy. So basically there are, are herbivores that feed on the plankton. There are mid-level carnivores that feed on those herbivores and that's top level carnivores that feed on those carnivores. And we're really not sure what happens when you pull the plug on any one of the levels. And this is because it's what's called a non-linear system. It's very poorly characterized. We don't know what the threshold levels are. All we do know is that if you take the apex predators from the top, that, that the layer immediately underneath them will expand and they will subsequently eat the layer underneath them. And then that layer will be depleted, which will then affect the lower layer. So all we know is that the system will be out of whack and it's quite possible that something like algal blooms would emerge or an overabundance of a particular kind of fish. So these systems are very, very hard to predict because of this nonlinearity, these threshold effects. The only way we can sort of do it is by actually running the experiment. And we don't really want to do that because we don't really want to know how bad it's going to be. But it will settle on a new stable state. So if you pull one of these things out, it'll rebalance itself, but probably not in a way that we're going to be very happy about. It would be a very different world than the one that we're used to. So fascinating, right? Yeah. I thought the Bahamas was doing a really good job, especially around Cat Island, so that more sharks were coming back to that area. And But I also understand, like, if you're in um, Southeast Asia, where uh, shark fin soup is a delicacy, then people right. want to go after sharks. And really, they're only after the fin, so they catch the big giant shark and only want the fin and then dis disregard the other part of the shark, which is which is horrible. I mean, I, you know, obviously... We know people all over the world, even though we don't here in the U.S. eat dogs and cats. They do. So it takes a long time to get the general population, you know, used to stopping to eat these 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 creatures. So um, that's absolutely true. But there are many parts of the world where they don't just eat, they just don't harvest the fins. They harvest the whole animal, which is perfectly fine. And people have been doing this for thousands of years artisanal fishermen. And 
those kinds of operations don't really impact the shark populations that much. It's the big commercial endeavors that, uh, that target these high value fins and discard the rest. That's actually coming down a little bit. Uh, there are parts of the world that you know, are, are making tremendous efforts in, in, in parts of South America, where they are actually insisting that the whole carcass is used and they have regulated controls, which are quite good. But you're absolutely right in Southeast Asia, things are a little different. I did work in the Philippines 30 years ago, and in the markets there, I would see thousands of sharks, all different kinds. And if you go there now, you're lucky if you see one or two. So they often have been fairly heavily fished out. And it's not that it's an ongoing problem, which it might be, but the trouble is these animals live a long time and it takes a while for their numbers to get back up. If you, if you, don't, if you don't reach maturity till you're 20 years old, and you don't have many pups, it's going to take a long time to recover from depletion. So it's 20 years old before they have pups. Well, it depends which species, but some it might be older than that. So oh, wow. bonnethead is fairly short lived shark. It, it may uh, reach maturity in four or five years, but there are things like the Greenland shark, which we estimate may live up to 400 years. It may not be mature till it's 100 years old. So. And, and I also heard that sharks don't necessarily have pups every year, correct? That's exactly right. Some of them have pups every three years. Most of them don't have that many pups, like a sand tiger shark, the ones that are, have been in the news uh, off Long Island. They only have two pups, one in each uterus. And the reason for that is they do something really fascinating. They have what's called intrauterine cannibalism. So the first thing a bunch of fertilized eggs do as they grow, the little embryos, the first thing when they get big enough to move around is they swim through the uterus and kill all their brothers and sisters. And, and then they start eating them. And so, of course, it's a winner takes all. And the small pup is, is eating the, the, its brothers and sisters and then all the fertilized eggs. And so there can only be one winner. So each uterus has a single pup and that pup is born at about three feet long. They have two uteri. So a sand tiger can only have two pups at a time. That's not many. Wow. How horrific, but fascinating. It's totally yeah. fascinating. <laughs> We're going to take a commercial break. Dr. Naylor is sticking around with us to answer more questions. Also up next is Celebrity Pet Buzz and Flex Facts. You are listening to The Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We love to communicate with you via social media. Use The Pet Buzz social media channels on Twitter and Facebook to make a comment or ask a question. Post a picture of your pet on Instagram and tell us about his or her unique personality. You can also write to us at team at the pet buzz Com. For more information about our show, our guests, and our buzzworthy freebies, visit us at thepetbuzz.com. Thank you for joining us on the Pet Buzz this morning. The show is hosted by the dynamic pet duo. I'm petrondologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We are continuing our discussion with Dr. Gavin Naylor. Well, more with Dr. Naylor and sharks, and of course global pet news and tell me something good. So we're back with Dr. Gavin Naylor, the program director of the Florida program for shark research at the University of Florida. And we are celebrating, Doc and I are celebrating Shark Week by learning about these majestic and mysterious creatures. You had a question, Dr. Fleck. Yeah. Are there, are there places throughout the world where sharks hang out and have commercial fishing bands contributed to larger congregations 
of sharks visiting these places? So that's a great question. We suspect that there are parts of the world, usually at depth, where there are probably fairly high densities of sharks. Fortunately, uh, not the commercial fishing fleets have not really um, mined the, 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 the far reaches of the depths of the sea, but they're starting to. Um, and so uh, a big problem for sharks is not just that they're targeted by so in some parts of the world, but that they're caught as bycatch. So you may be fishing for tuna or for salmon or for some other targeted regulated fishery. And the sharks, of course, will be attracted to the high density of fishes that you're fishing for, and they can get caught in the nets. And it might only be 10 or 20 sharks, but as we've just discussed, 10 or 20 sharks can have an outsized impact on the cascade of the feeding systems that lie immediately underneath them. So bycatch of sharks is a huge problem. Now, I would like to say, just to plug, the US commercial fishing fleet are very well regulated. The fishermen here understand that it's in their long-term interest to abide by the rules. And so the US has done a remarkably good job of regulating most fishing industries. And so the US fleet is not really responsible for a lot of the demise of the shark populations. But there are other parts of the world where they don't have such extensive uh, legislation and policing. And the, the fleets on the high seas are really basically unregulated. So a lot of the pelagic sharks, the makos, the blue sharks, the thresher sharks, they're in the ocean open while they're protected. It's very, very hard to implement the protections when you're hundreds or thousands of miles away and there's some uh, commercial boat from, uh, from a particular country that doesn't really abide by the rules that the US fishing fleet does. We're going to move on with the show, but we will be celebrating more Shark Week with Dr. Gavin Naylor from University of Florida later on in the show. Time now for Celebrity Pet Buzz. Well, Martha Stewart's in the news again for more deceased pets. Stewart announced the death of six of her pet peacocks Saturday after coyotes attacked them in broad daylight. In her post, she asked for any advice. She said, any solutions to getting rid of six large and aggressive coyotes who have expensive taste when it comes to poultry? Well, yeah, Martha, get a spiked fence and keep your beautiful birds in an enclosed area. And now it's time for Flex Facts. Welcome to Just the Facts. Just the Facts. Fact or fiction? Just the Facts, ma'am. You want answers. I want the truth. Dr. Fleck, what's the topic for discussion today? How about this? Monkeypox. One of my favorite clients just asked me if his dog can get it. Really? So tell me about monkeypox. Since May... 2022, there have been over 3,000 cases of monkeypox identified outside of endemic regions with 156 cases identified in the United States. That's kind of a lot. Yes and no. With the rise of the virus and maybe pet owners being aware that cats and dogs can acquire many of the same diseases and infections as humans, people are wondering if their cat and dog can possibly acquire and spread 
the monkeypox virus. This is what COVID did since we can give COVID to pets. People yes. think any disease, they want to know if their pet can get it. Okay, so well, can a dog or cat get monkeypox? Monkeypox is a communicable disease caused by monkeypox virus that infects mammals and causes flu-like symptoms, maybe with fever, conjunctivitis, lymphadenopathy, coughing, and widespread spread rashes that can be open sores. The most susceptible pets to monkeypox disease are non-human primates like monkeys, rodents, rats and mice, squirrels, rabbits, and prairie dogs. Some animals may not have any symptoms and can pose the risk of being carriers. While there have not been any known cases of monkeypox in cats and dogs, scientists state that there's always a possibility that there are mammals that may contact it. It is not known if cats and dogs can be infected with the monkeypox virus or if they can be carriers, as many animals can carry the virus without exhibiting any clinical signs of illness. More research into the possible cases is needed to provide a definitive answer to the question of the probability of dogs and cats getting monkeypox disease as the full range of susceptible diseases is still a mystery. Sounds just like how it started with COVID. You can't really, unless you find dogs or cats who get it, then you can't really know if dogs and cats can get it. You're absolutely right. Just have to stay aware of what the CDC tells us and monitor as we go along. Okay, so how, uh, so can we compare the disease to, what can we compare the disease to? Monkeypox is a zoonotic disease, meaning it can be transmitted from animals to humans and humans to animals. The virus that causes monkeypox is closely related to the one that causes smallpox in humans. However, monkeypox is usually less severe and has a lower mortality rate than smallpox. Well, that's good. I mean, we have vaccinations for smallpox. At this point. Right. So what should you do if you suspect that your pet has monkeypox? If you think your dog may have been exposed to monkeypox, it is important to contact your veterinarian right away. They will be able to help you determine if your dog is at risk and how to best protect them. In the meantime, there are a few things you can do to help prevent the spread of monkeypox. This is for us primarily. Wash our hands thoroughly with soap and water after handling your dog. Avoid sharing food or toys with your dog. Keep your dog away from other animals. Monitor your dog for any signs of illness such as fever, rash, or headaches. Hmm. Well, that's normal. I mean, you're, you know, washing your hands. That's all the stuff you do anyway when you're sick or, you know, when like with COVID. Anything else, Dr. Fleck? That's all the Flex facts for the week. Up next, but you can't wait for my I Like of the Week. And we are celebrating Shark Week with Dr. Gavin Naylor from University of Florida. So I'm a cat and I just moved in with this new human. And she's got this little toy she's always playing with all day long. Tap, 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 bloop, bloop. She can't put it down. There it is. Oh, and get this, she even talks to it. Last week, she asked it for Chinese, and guess what? Egg rolls showed up, like magic. Humans have cool toys. A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. 
According to the American Animal Hospital Association and the American College of Veterinary Dermatology, pets need sunscreen too. EpiPet Sun Protector, the only FDA-approved pet sunscreen on short-haired, light-colored, hairless, golden retrievers and other dogs susceptible to skin cancer. Contained in a sports bottle, EpiPet allows you to turn the bottle upside down, making it easier to spray your dog all over to protect your dog from the sun all day and every day. Epi-Pet.com EpiPet is another proud partner of the Pet Buzz. I'm pleased to introduce a new feature to the show. It's our Spotlight. The Spotlight segment will feature a pet owner just like you who talks about his or her life with a dog or a cat or will feature a unique animal professional who was working to help you take better care of your pets or addresses an animal-related issue. So I am so pleased to have my gal pal, Alexandra Baker, who way back when, when we both lived in New York, wasn't so keen on dogs, but now she's gaga over her dog, Queen Elizabeth, a five-year-old King Charles Spaniel. Alex, thanks so much for joining me on the Pet Buzz today. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you for having us, myself and Queen Elizabeth. So I have to tell everyone a story. Years ago, um, Alex and I, uh, we both had houses in the Hamptons. Alex had a share house with a bunch of people living, you know, coming out on weekends. And I had a small cottage in the Hamptons. And she told one of our friends, oh, no one would ever date me because I had all these four dogs and a blah, 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 (laughs) blah. And I was always walking them and taking them out and feeding them. And my, my nightlife schedule would revolve around the dogs. But it's so funny to find that Alex is now a huge dog lover. She kind of, I hate to say this, I'm not making the comparison, but I have to. She's kind of like Star Jones. So when I used to do The View back in the day, Elizabeth, and they were doing my makeup, um, Elizabeth Hasselback would run into the makeup room and she'd say, Charlotte, oh my gosh, Star's coming. You know, she doesn't like dogs. And my dog Burberry or one of my other dogs would be next to me and i'd have to get up and and run out and have star come and do her makeup and come after and then scar just then star discovered the dream dog of her life pinky michelle and she's gaga over dogs so alex what changed your mind about dogs we have a 17 nearly 18 year old daughter sophia and uh around five years ago she started saying, I want a dog, I want a puppy, I want a dog. And I remember, I remember thinking, I have a totally white house. I have one child and my husband. Uh, I don't see, we had, and we had a bunny at the time because when she was three, she was uh, given a beautiful white little tiny uh, her tot. I don't, I don't know, it's a tiny one. It looked just like the little Tiffany bunny. Uh, he died a few years ago and his name was a uh, cucumber uh, Maybelline. He had a little white pink with little black around his eyes. And so we already had a pet. We already have something. No, she was insistent, was really not letting it go. And it kind of was not like her. I said, I know we will find when we find the perfect dog. And there were two scenes, believe it or not, from sex in the city. When Charlotte, do you remember when Charlotte was trying to adopt a baby mm-hmm. and she said, we will know when we find our baby. And then they showed her her first little baby, that little Chinese girl. She goes, that's our baby. And I felt the same way about the search for a dog. And then the other thing in common with Charlotte from that show was I knew I wanted the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. I had always loved this breed. I knew a little bit about them. I knew they were a little bit more rare. I never saw them here in Florida. Um, I knew we would have to go with some type of a breeder out of Largo, Florida. Uh, or, you know, and, and that's how we got her. But when we saw Queen, I was like, that's our dog. And it has been love ever since. Uh, she's very well trained for the most part. And, um, and I just can't believe out of the three of us, 
I am her person. Okay, so like, let's 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 person. take a step back. So what's so special about Queen Elizabeth? Look at the eyes. Queen, look, 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 look at the eyes. Oh Queen. Very what are you looking at, Queen. Yeah. Queen, what are you She's looking at? Beautiful. I mean, I feel like, you know, last week, I know this sounds crazy, but <laughs> I was having a bad moment and I was crying a little bit. I was in the garage. I was near the washing machine and uh, I was upset about something. She was not, she was so distressed. She came to the room, got Troy. Troy went out and he said, Queen came and got me. Are you all right? I was like, wow, she's just extraordinary. I feel like she's human. She's in tune. She's in tune. She's in tune. I know, but she's definitely part of the family. And uh, I, I feel guilty leaving her too long. And um yeah, she's just totally part of the family. And and I just I just love this breed. I just love how smart they are, how well trained, how well responsive. She's also stubborn. You know, she'll sometimes she's like, I'm not listening to you. Like all I hear is uh, 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 and wah, wah, I'm done. Wah. I don't hear it. But she never does that to Troy. Troy is uh definitely that domineering male right. king. The, the alpha, yeah. alpha dog in the house. She bows down, yeah, she knows. Okay, so for someone who never owned a dog, how did you prepare for, because you have to understand, Alex is a girly girl, okay? I mean, I, I, you know, I remember the first time I had my eyebrows done, I went with Alex, who's a former beauty queen, okay? Can we go to the Avon Salon downtown? Yeah. I mean, midtown? <laughs> yeah, we went to the salon on the Lexington Avenue and 84th Street, and I remember, and oh, Alex would, salon, and yeah. Alex would tell me, I said, well, it's going to hurt. Alex says, for every pluck, I feel more beautiful. I mean, that, so I have never forgotten that. So how did you prepare for Queen Elizabeth? We watched videos and um, we were definitely, you know, when I had my daughter, I was, everything was on a schedule. I was very, you know, on a schedule. I didn't do any of that feeding on demand. No, no, no. Schedule, you're dry, you're fed, you're loved, you're in your crib, you go to sleep. So uh, I kind of, did the same approach with her. You need to go out. You're gonna. We took her out. There's a swale near our front yard. You go to the same area. They said you go out. You let her out. She'll let you know. That took a little time of us. If anything, we needed to learn faster than she did. It was consistent. They said put her in the beginning. Put her bowl down. Five minutes. She doesn't get the bowl. Pick it up. You know, like it's time to eat. You put the bowl down for five minutes. Now this is when they're a puppy. It's a different deal now. But. Um, so I really tried to my best ability to do everything we were advised to do and to maintain the schedule and to maintain those systems um, because, it, you know, I, I like systems and um, that that's what worked for us. And then when she was around five months old, it might not have even been, yeah, it was around five months. Mm -hmm. Then she went to Larry the dog man who is a mile and a half from our home. And he said, I need to keep her for three weeks. And he kept her for five weeks. He said, you know, there are some dogs, there are some breeds. You could push them a little bit. You can be a little bit more aggressive with them. He said, not queen, but truth be told, I think the family fell in love with her and they like, and, and they like kept her for a little while longer, but he said he didn't want to push her. And there's a quick little story I want to tell you about uh, on the side. They had 18 dogs at the time that they were training and working with. And one dog was named, um, oh, what, what's that show where he eats the people? Hannibal, Hannibal. Mm -hmm. He was a pit 
and he was very aggressive and he didn't like anybody and he did not like any of the other dogs. And they had to do like some extra caging and keeping him away, except for Queen. For some reason, he like melted when he was with Queen. So Hannibal only wanted to be around Queen. <laughs> That's funny. You know, Myla, I, I have one more question. So obviously, and I know the answer to it already just by your reaction. So if QE passes, would you get another dog? Yeah, we would get um, a King Henry James, Troy Baker. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's King Henry James. That's one of the greatest things, honestly, about these dog names. So, you know, uh, for those of you who've heard me, I, you know, I went through this river phase. So I had a Hudson, a Thames, a Roan, a Ty. Oh, a Thames. A I love it. Right. I love and that. little did I know that Hudson and Thames were a publishing company based in England. So now I'm in a different kind of phase. So I have um, I'm in an, an English notable royalty stage so i have hammy which his real name is walsingham named after the father of spycraft and then wally is really walsey who was queen elizabeth the first right hand man um I, right? i'm sorry no i'm sorry walsey which was henry walsingham. no there's walsingham that was Queen Elizabeth. I thought Washington was with Queen no, Elizabeth right. one. That's yeah. Hammy. That's Hammy. So that was Queen. Yeah. That's okay. Hammy. So that's Hammy Jones. Then I have Wally, which is real. His name is Walsey, and he is named after the Cardinal. He's red. He's a ruby English toy spaniel, and I named him after Cardinal Walsey because Walsey was such a brilliant man. And his real name yeah. is uh, Backroads Rise to Prominence. Walsey was a, ba a butcher's boy. And he rose to prominence as um, head of chief of the coin, which is, you know, and uh, and King Henry VIII's right hand man until he couldn't procure Henry VIII a divorce from his first wife, Catherine right. of Aragon. Yep. So yep. and now I have um, I have a Churchill. I have a Blenheim, same color as uh, QE there. Churchill. I love that. Yes. And Churchill. Yes. His name, his kennel name is. Um, uh, pro English, pro prominent English statesman, Churchill. So, uh, yeah, so King Henry, okay, that's great. We love that. Okay, Alex, thank you so much for joining me today. It, it was a fun interview. Um, <laughs> we're going to post a picture of Likewise. Queen Elizabeth on our social media feed so our audience can see how truly special your charming dog is. You know, Myla, I, I have one more question. So obviously, and I know the answer to it already just by your reaction. So if QE passes, would you get another dog? Yeah, we would get um, a King Henry James, Troy Baker. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's King Henry James. That's one of the greatest things, honestly, about these dog names. So, you know, uh, for those of you who've heard me, I, you know, I went through this river phase. So I had a Hudson, a Thames, a Roan, a Ty. Oh, a Thames. I love it. Right. I love and that. little did I know that Hudson and Thames were a publishing company based in England. So now I'm in a different kind of phase. So I have um, I'm in an, an English notable royalty stage so i have hammy which his real name is walsingham named after the father of spycraft and then wally is really walsey who was queen elizabeth the first right hand man um I, right? i'm sorry no i'm sorry walsey which was henry walsingham. 
No, there's Walsingham. That was Queen Elizabeth. I thought Walsingham was with, with Queen no, Elizabeth right. one. That's yeah. Hammy. That's Hammy. So that was Queen. Yeah. That's okay. Hammy. So that's Hammy Jones. Then I have Wally, which is real. His name is Walsey, and he is named after the Cardinal. He's red. He's a ruby English toy spaniel, and I named him after Cardinal Walsey because Walsey was such a brilliant man. And his real name yeah. is uh, Backroads Rise to Prominence. Walsey was a ba- uh, butcher's boy. And he rose to prominence as um, head of chief of the coin, which is, you know, and uh, and King Henry VIII's right hand man until he couldn't procure Henry VIII a divorce from his first wife, Catherine right. of Aragon. Yep. So yep. and now I have um, I have a Churchill. I have a Blenheim, same color as uh, QE there. Churchill. I love that. Yes. And Churchill. Yes. His name, his kennel name is. Um, uh, pro- English, pro- prominent English statesman, Churchill. So, uh, yeah, so King Henry, okay, that's great. We love that. Okay, Alex, thank you so much for joining me today. It it was a fun interview. Um, <laughs> we're going to post a picture of Likewise. Queen Elizabeth on our social media feed so our audience can see how truly special your charming dog is. You're listening to the Pet Buzz, the best in pet talk radio. I'm petrondologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. And now it's time for my I Like You of the Week. It's genius. I like it. I love it so much. I like it. It's to die for. I like it. With dog training classes, vet visits, grooming appointments, heartworm pills, and flea and tick medication to administer, kennel and pet sitting dates, and of course, play dates, dog owners need a planner to keep track of their canine schedules. So I favor the Clementine Paper Exercise Puppy Dogs 2022-2023 Spiral Hardbound Planner, which is made with paper containing recycled fiber and printed with non-toxic soy-based ink. It's an adorable gift for any dog lover, and it's about $9.99 online. Now, I will say the cover is pink, so I think this is more of a gal gift, but I promise, guys, next week I'm going to have something for you. And now with our new feature, the Pet Buzz Mailbag. You've got mail. Well, Lee from Roanoke, Virginia, wrote that money is getting really tight for her family of six. That includes her dog, Bugsy. And she wonders if she should start clipping coupons for dog products. Well, first of all, I want to say, Lee, thank you so much for writing. It's a great question. You know, in recent years, many consumers said they were using fewer coupons because they couldn't find coupons for the products that they wanted to buy. So... If you're buying dog food at a supermarket or a big box store, use online coupons, coupons from the local paper, as well as weekly circulars that come out. And if you stack coupons, there's always more savings to be had. But if you shop at a larger corporate pet chain store, check out their website for the best deals, as well as look for in-store circulars to find savings too. You might also consider writing to your favorite pet food company and ask them to send you coupons. If you're feeding a prescription diet, ask the vet for ways that you can save money. Many of the prescription and veterinary only diets, there are ways to save money. There might be a sign up campaign. So definitely talk to the receptionist at your vet's office. 
Lee, hope this helps you. Good luck sniffing out more savings on pet food and other products. You're my kind of gal. Now more with Dr. Naylor. To remind you, Shark Week returns to Discovery Channel with a full week of TV specials that started last Sunday, June 24th. This year, this network celebrates 34 years of its annual Shark Week event. We are continuing our discussion with Dr. Gavin Naylor. Um, Dr. Naylor, sharks are portrayed in the media as killer loners, but this isn't necessarily true. Is it true that some shark species have complex social networks as well as shark friends? So we're not sure, but certainly it's very provocative that for the longest time, researchers have noticed that sharks segregate by both size and sex. So you might find a group of sandbar sharks that are all males and they're between 150 and 155 centimeters long. And then another place you might find a group of females that are 170 uh, centimeters long. So the fact that they have, they segregate by size, like a sort of teenage groups, if you will, and by sex suggests that there are social um, interactions where they all collectively hang out in the same kind of group. Uh, there is some evidence, beginning to be behavioral evidence, for sharks in the South Pacific that they may actually have uh, social networks. But uh, it's sort of very preliminary data. We suspect it may be true. As for shark friends, um, I think that might be stretching it a bit. Um, but, uh, but I think that there is, it's very likely that they have social networks that are based on hierarchies. Now, within that, are we talking about various species coming together or is it just one species of shark? Great question. So biologists discriminate between those two ideas. One is called a multi-species complex and the other is an intra-species complex. And both occur, but what's been studied mostly is interactions within one species, like gray reef sharks in the South Pacific. You had a question, Dr. Fleck. You have a question about drones. How have the drones in general been revolutionizing the study of shark movement? Uh, tremendously. Uh, drones are really, really powerful ways to visualize movement of sharks from the surface when they're in shallow water. We don't see deep water movements, but a lot of coastal sharks are swimming within the top four feet of the water. And for example, a colleague of mine, Dr. Kajura, down at Florida Atlantic University, um, has been able to photograph from the air tens of thousands of black teeth sharks as they move up the coast to the eastern coast of Florida. So drones are very helpful, but they only tell us local movements at the surface. As soon as the sharks sound and go to depth, we can no longer rely on drones. So that's why we tag them. And then sometimes we tag them with little devices that send out a ping, an acoustic sound. And that ping has a particular signature and when that signature is recorded by a hydrophone, we say, ah, oh, this is 127469 was here this time on this day. And then we can reconstruct the movements of individuals. But drones are useful, and they're particularly useful for beach safety people. If there are sharks that are large and they move into a crowded beach area, people can send up the drones and they can see that there's a white shark. It might be minding its own business but the beach safety people like to know that it's, you know, it's um, a mile offshore and they keep an eye on it. 
And uh, so, so drones have been particularly helpful for the beach safety community. I also think drones are really helpful in, in terms of capturing amazing photos of sharks because you know, how else are you going to be able, not everyone's going to go get on a boat and then run out and take pictures of sharks. So I think that's one way we get to see more um, different, the general public gets to see more um, of the different species of sharks from the, from drone photography, correct, Dr. Naylor? Absolutely. Yeah. Drones have revolutionized so much wildlife photography. It's, it's amazing. Well, the great white shark may be one of the most feared animals on Earth. We all remember Jaws, right? Of course. But yet we know so little about the species. What has recent scientific research revealed about these fantastic, iconic fish? So a lot. We actually, uh, even though we would like to know more about white sharks, we actually know quite a bit about them relative to some of the other sharks that we, we have almost no knowledge of, like the, the tail light shark. But white sharks uh, are, are animals that people like to tag. So we see how they move around the world. We see that they have some seasonality to their movements. The ones in California have very peculiar behaviors. They sometimes swim out to a region in the middle of the Pacific uh, which is a giant area, thousand of kilometers long and a, and uh, uh, maybe 500 kilometers wide. And uh, these sharks from California move over there and they spend several months there and they dive to tremendous depth to perhaps maybe 2000 feet. And we're not sure what they're doing. Some people have speculated that they may be breeding or that they may be feeding on squid. And so the movements are, are really strange and they, they go out to this area in the Pacific and then they come back to California um, uh, at, at the end of the year. So those are the kinds of things that we've learned from tagging. An Australian uh, piece of uh, research work found something quite interesting, which we had long suspected, but didn't have evidence for. And that is that a lot of the bites by white sharks on humans, and there really aren't that many of them, so we don't have a lot of data, but it seems as if they are done by immature animals. So the young ones, like in, in any organism, the young ones haven't got as much experience, and so they're not as discerning, and so they make more mistakes. Animals age and become older when they've been successful, and they have discerned what's a good thing to do and what's not a good thing to do. Young ones tend to make more mistakes, and as a consequence, this Australian study showed that a lot of the bites on humans are actually done by immature white sharks that are not that sort of a experience. So that's, that's an interesting finding that we found. And my own group is doing work on the genetics of sharks. We're actually sequencing the whole genomes of these sharks. And anybody's genome is like a time capsule of the history of the population that you come from. And so we can reconstruct how the population sizes of white sharks have changed, how they've moved from one part of the world to the next. And we can do this all from the DNA in the genomes of these animals. That's quite interesting. We have been speaking with University of Florida, Dr. Gavin Naylor about sharks, sharks, and more sharks. More with Dr. Naylor in our next segment. And of course, Global Pet News and Tell Me Something Good. You are listening to The Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. 
We would love to communicate with you via social media. Use the Pet Buzz social media channels on Twitter and Facebook to make a comment or ask a question. Post a picture of your pet on Instagram and tell us about his or her unique personality. You can also write to us at team at thepetbuzz.com. For more information about our show, our guests, and buzzworthy freebies, visit us at thepetbuzz.com. I'm petrondologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. Here at the Pet Buzz, we are urban, suburban, and and country. country. We're back with Dr. Gavin Naylor, the program director of Florida's program for shark research at the University of Florida. We are celebrating Shark Week by learning more about these majestic and mysterious creatures. Pretty amazing. You know, in recent years, I discovered people are really into shark tourism. It's on the rise. So what are the pros and cons about shark tourism? Well, the pros of shark tourism is that many people are becoming better educated about how fascinating these animals are. Rather than just fearing them, they learn that they've got some very interesting sort of bag of tricks that they do. They can detect electrical activity. They've got fairly good vision. And they've got these strange traits, like there's a whole group of sharks that are glow in the dark and that reflect light and that camouflage themselves. They can change color. So people are learning a lot about all of the attributes that this strange group of animals have. The downside is that sometimes when with shark tourism, of course, tourists want to see the sharks. And so what do they do? The operators bring the sharks in and increase the probability that they're going to be around by baiting them. So shark, a lot of sharks are predators. Most of them are predators. And so they're going to respond to food in the water. So they'll come around and then we might end up with a high density of sharks in an area due to a tourism operator, tourist uh, uh, people that are actually sort of offering cage diving. So the sharks will be present when they wouldn't normally be present. And then if the dive operator is not there and somebody's minding their own business, just swimming around, then they could be uh, at higher risk of being bitten because the shark is actually looking for food. Totally intriguing. I'm particularly intrigued about the, uh, the, the reproductive cycle, the the, uh, the the fetus in the uterine and how the savagery well that's that goes that's on. one species of wow. shark but I think a lot of that's scientists crazy. are you know they're tracking sharks with GPS tracking like Dr. Naylor said but I think one of the big still big mysteries for Mark for most shark experts is how sharks reproduce because I don't think a lot of um, shark experts have found like the breeding grounds but the probability and how they breed. but the probability of assisting for the shark population maybe understanding how this happens and being able to control it so more of those pups can be can be born something for you researchers to consider anyway so so you're you're absolutely correct one of the big mysteries that we're sort of the scientific community is a bit embarrassed about is the largest fish in the sea is the whale shark and it has pups and it's actually one of the few that has a lot of pups it can have up to 300 pups and the pups are tiny they're about a foot long at birth and we've recovered probably less than 10 of these pups. Where are these pups? We have no clue. <laughs> wow, how fascinating. And you know what else is fascinating? Like sharks are like 400 million years old. They're <laughs> older than dinosaurs. I just thought that was so cool. I mean. How intriguing. Yeah, I mean, it's. You're really in the area, doctor, of 
being able to understand and discover some really intriguing, wonderful things for the rest of us in, in humanity. Yeah, we have a lot more questions than we have answers, but we're working on it. <laughs> well, Dr. Naylor, thank you for joining us today. Uh, what a great presentation for Shark Program for this week. Uh, can you give us your website? Sure, absolutely. Um, it's uh, uh, sharks, so www.sharksrays.org. Great. Fascinating. How great. I know. And you know what? It, what's nice is I think sometimes, you know, Shark Week can be a little too much or a little, you know, super promotional or, you know, because they're now they have celebrities and blah, blah, blah. But a lot of um, local um, museums and and marine attractions are doing something for Shark Week. And actually, we're very blessed here where we live in the Bradenton, Sarasota area. Moat Marine has a shark exhibit yes. going on right now for Shark Week. So I'm going to try to head over there, uh, maybe over the weekend and check it out. I mean, sharks are so fascinating. I can't wait till next year when we interview again and see what's new. Uh, yeah, we're finding things out all the time every year. It's interesting. That's great. Thank you for joining us. So just to remind you, that was Dr. Gavin Naylor from the Program for Shark Research at the University of Florida discussing recent research about sharks. Okay, well, it's time for Global Pet News. And now, Pet Buzz News from around the globe. You know, over the last year, thousands of people had problems trying to bring dogs into the U.S., primarily military members, State Department workers, federal contractors, refugees, and various animal groups. No one knows how many dogs or cats have had to be left behind overseas. The CDC says new rules protecting the public's health against the reintroduction of canine rabies, which was eradicated in the U.S. in 2007. Well, about a million dogs come into the U.S. every year, about 100,000 from restricted countries. To the CDC, each dog is a risk, however slight. CDC workers turned away 458 dogs for having invalid vaccines or improper paperwork in 2020, a small percentage of all imports, but a 52% increase over the previous three years. New rules, which went into effect in July of 2021, require those dogs coming into the U.S. from those 113 countries have a rabies vaccine approved by the U.S. Then the dogs have to wait 30 days and have a tighter blood test to see if they've had enough antibodies. Here's the key. A handful of laboratories around the world process those tests. Results can take months. So with fewer international flights as a contributing factor, as well as many airlines refusing to fly animals, Dogs denied often have long waits before being sent back. The CDC notice said many of them while they're waiting get sick, they're waiting in crates, and as a result, many of them die. Critics say the new requirements are unnecessary, they're restrictive, they're sometimes almost impossible to comply with. The narrow pathway to get permission to bring a dog into the U.S. now that used cost about 15000 it used to cost about $500. So rescue groups may no longer be able to afford to save dogs from foreign meat markets 
or get them off the streets abroad. So if you're planning to travel overseas and return back to the US, you need to plan ahead. You need to plan well in advance and have enormous amount of money to, to bring your dog back into the country. I suggest if you're going on an assignment for a year, leave your dog in the US with a family member or a friend who will take care of your dog. Do not take your dog overseas because you might not be able to get him back in, in a timely way. And you don't want to leave him overseas for three or four months. Right, Dr. Fleck? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think these new rules and regulations are really challenging for people that care about their pets. Our pets, we want to be with every day. So to be denying them the opportunity to be with us and under the conditions that they have to live, it's horrible. And it's another one of those things that seems to exist in our cultures and living today that we can't seem to reach some sort of a compromise that meets the needs of us as humans and what our pets need. It's to. very, very difficult. So many people want to do good work, especially the rescuers who yes. are going to Southeast Asia. Great discussion, Dr. Fleck. Love your comments, but it's time to end the show. And I always want to end the show on a good note with tell me something good. News of the day got you down? No worries. Pet trendologist Charlotte Reed is here with Tell Me Something Good. This is a necessity like air and oxygen. Tell me something good. Kenzie Jones, a second grade teacher at St. Michael's Episcopal School in Richmond, was trying to think of an original idea as a persuasive writing assignment for her kiddos in her class. And then it finally hit her right before she went to bed. What if kids wrote adoption letters from animals at the local shelter from a pet's perspective? Well, Jones volunteers at Richmond Animal Center and Control, and the shelter was eager to collaborate. Within weeks, the kids had helped 24 pets, that's 23 dogs and one cat, find new homes through well-crafted sentences and some really well-drawn pictures. Well, the assignment accumulated with an appearance on the Kelly Clarkson show during which a family who adopted one of the dogs, I'm all ears was his name, told Jones's student Hattie that her drawing and, and paragraph had drawn them to their new dog. So I want you to check out the letter and a picture from one of the kiddos that helped get a dog adopted on our social media channels. Well, it's always too soon to wrap the show. Before we go, we want to give you a preview of next week's show. So next week, we're talking about starting a dog business, International Assistance Dog Week, and understanding feline vaccinations. Dr. Fleck, would you mind thanking our guest? Thank you to our special guest, Dr. Jose Arce and Dr. Gavin Naylor, Great. as well as Alexandra Baker. And of course, we must thank our sponsors, the Animal Medical Center of Bradenton and EpiPet, making better skin coat and ear care products for healthier pets everywhere. If you have a question, write to us at team at the We'll cover it on next week's show. And if you've missed any portion of this show, visit our social media channels as well as your favorite streaming channel and listen to the link podcast on Monday morning. Most importantly, remember, we're here each week to help you Take better care of your pets. Peace out and pet love. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Pet Buzz. 
The Pet Buzz is hosted by the dynamic pet duo, pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and Dr. Michael Fleck. www.thepetbuzz.com Learn more about us, the show, and our guests.